Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah. Return to me, and I will return to you. It's the promise of Yahweh to his people that, uh, that really frames this book. It began with a message from, through the prophet Zechariah to his people who have been returning from exile in Babylon, a 70-year period of God's judgment upon them for their idolatry and their rebellion. And now that period of judgment and exile has come, is coming to an end, and groups of these exiles have been returning to the land of Judah and specifically to the city of Jerusalem. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the, the rebuilding of the temple and the strengthening of, of the city. And Zechariah, the prophet, ministers to the people of Israel during that rebuilding period. And so God begins to speak to his people after the beginning of the temple rebuilding has been stalled. They had laid the foundation and they got frustrated with various opposition from uh, some neighbors that didn't like that they were there rebuilding the city and from some disagreements among themselves. And so they just stopped the work. And for about 20 years, it's been lying dormant. And so God has raised up the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to call to his people, to exhort them. I am returning to you. You return to me. Return to me in covenant faithfulness. Renew your love for me. Renew your commitment to follow and obey the covenant that I have made with you. And so he has been giving to Zechariah, as we've seen these last couple of weeks, eight night visions. It seems to be that these happen in one night, one right after another. And uh, so these are waking visions that, that, that Yahweh gives to Zechariah in which he sees various images and scenes and symbols that represent some aspect of what God wants to say to his people. And I've argued that the eight visions are structured in a chiasm. That is where there's a, a, there's a parallelism to the, the visions on the outside, and then the next one's in, and finally culminating in the middle two visions, where the point, the tip of that chiasm, is the main point of the whole body. So these eight visions are structured in order to drive home the point that he's making in visions four and five. Last week, we looked at vision number four, where we saw Joshua, the high priest, wearing dirty robes, and God, in grace, clothed him with new robes, removed his iniquity, and prepared him for work of, uh, the work of temple service. And indeed, that was a picture of his cleansing of all of the sins of the people, so that God, in his holiness, could dwell with the people, even though they're unholy, even though they are sinners. Namely, he would clothe them with his own righteousness. And that high priest, of course, points us forward to Jesus Christ, the high priest to end all high priests, as Dane Ortland says in Gentle and Lowly, which we've been reading recently. Today's vision, the fifth vision, it takes up all of Zechariah chapter 4. There are three promises that we see in these verses. I'm going to tell you what the promises are, and then we'll read the whole chapter, and then we're going to break these promises down one at a time. We see the promise that the temple will be built. The temple will be built. We see the promise that the Spirit will empower His people. The Spirit of God will empower His people. And then finally, we see the promise that the King will reign. The King will reign. 
Let me read for you all 14 verses of chapter 4. So that's a little bit longer chunk of text than we always read at once, but I think it just, it, it's the, for our organization this morning, it makes the most sense just to get all of the text in front of us, and then we'll break it down according to these three promises that we see. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me said, or answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of Yahweh, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. May God bless his word to us this morning and give us understanding and faith to believe. Three promises wrapped up in this vision. The first one, the temple will be built. The temple will be built. Remember that the people are in a state of frustration, having laid the foundation of the temple and then gotten stuck. God is saying through the prophet Zechariah, first of all to the the governors, Rubabel, and then to the community as a whole, it will be completed. The temple will be rebuilt. And so the temple takes up a, a large portion of this, uh, of this image. Notice a couple of important images concerning the temple that we find uh, in this image. The first is a lampstand or a menorah. That's the Hebrew word here that's, that's translated as lampstand. It's a, a lampstand with seven lamps. And a lamp is really something close to a candle, right? So it, it burns and it, it takes oil to keep the, the flame burning in these lamps. And so that's the second image that we see is the olive trees. There's an olive tree on the right and an olive tree on the left. And that would be the source of oil, of olive oil for the bowl that pours into the bowl that then supplies these lamps that they would continue burning. And so the, the lampstand clearly represents the temple and probably explicitly represents uh, or, or directly represents the presence of God in the temple. So as long as the flame of these lamps is burning in the temple, 
God is there. There was one of these lampstands, these menorahs in the tabernacle in Moses' day, and there were ten of them in Solomon's temple. So in this image, there appears to be just the one lampstand that holds the seven lamps. Now, when it says that, it ha- that each one of these has lips, that's something like a spout. You might get a really weird image in your mind if you're thinking of like human lips on, on a lamp. Uh, it just means that each one of them had a spout. And so there's oil in a bowl that is being poured somehow into the lamp and the lamp flame is continuing to burn as long as it has oil. And so these trees, these olive trees on either side of the bowl that feed the lamp continually keep the flame burning. So the image of the lamp stand in the temple with the flame there burning and the olive trees beside it is the promise that God will be in the temple. The temple will be rebuilt and God himself will dwell there among the people again. You see reference, of course, to the work of building the temple. In uh, verse 9, we were reminded that Zerubbabel has laid the foundation, right? The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. Zerubbabel was among that early wave of returning exiles, and he became the governor of Judah, thus overseeing the work of the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, we are told explicitly in verse 9, Zerubbabel has laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. It will be done. Okay, There's nothing conditional indicated here at all. If you'll do this, then I'll consider rebuilding it. It's Zerubbabel's hands will complete the work. This is a promise that the temple building will be completed, that God himself will dwell among his people. You see this beautiful uh, uh, image there where he speaks to a mountain. Who are you, O great mountain? And that mountain seems to represent the various troubles that the people had run into in attempting to rebuild the temple from outward opposition and internal disagreements and financial problems and all sorts of things where they just ran out of resources, they ran out of energy, they ran out of the the strength to do the work. So here's all these things that stood in the way of completing the temple. And and this prophetic word addresses that mountain. Oh, great mountain, you shall become a plain before Zerubbabel. So what looks insurmountable, this mountain of difficulties and problems will be flattened into a plain, a flat land, right? So there'll be clear travel over this land. That is a reference to Isaiah 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted or lifted up and every mountain shall be brought low. We'll return to that in a few minutes. So bookmark it in your mind. But that is a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. So the lampstand and the olive trees represent the presence of God in the temple. He gives this explicit promise through Zechariah that Zerubbabel will complete the building of the temple. He will oversee the work. And then we have this, uh, that promise made all the more plain in the beginning of verse 10, where he's addressing now the community. So at first it was the angel said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, right? And we'll come to that in just a minute. But this, the second part of this message is, is to the, the, the people. The word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of rubble have laid the foundation. And so now look at verse 10. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Apparently there have been some critics 
There have been those that have difficulty with the fact that maybe Zerubbabel kind of gave up or the work stopped. They're disappointed. They're frustrated with the progress. Those who hated the day, despised the day of small beginnings, right, of small things. And the Lord is saying to them, you will see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. In other words, there's going to be a completion to this work and it's going to be different and truer and deeper and bigger than what you can imagine. Now, a plumb line is, uh, it was, is a, a, an old construction uh, technology where you tie a weight to the end of a string and then you hold the string or you affix the string to something and so because it has a weight on it, it naturally finds the center of gravity and becomes an accurate vertical line. So when you're building something, you can make sure that it's gonna be level, that it's gonna be even, that the angles are gonna be straight. And so the plumb line is a, is a construction technology ensuring accuracy. In other words, you will see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel means Zerubbabel will oversee the work of this temple and it's going to be done right, right? It's going to be built, it's going to be done well. Anthony Pedersen says, there were some in the community who were frustrated over the slow and painful progress of the rebuilding and made their frustration heard. So perhaps Zerubbabel had some complainers, a bit like Moses back in his day. You've led us out into the wilderness to starve. We should go back to Egypt, right? People like to complain, right? And indeed, it comes very naturally to us to despise small beginnings and to long for the glory and prestige of something big, Right? That's kind of innate to us. Certainly, it's a cultural value. The bigger, the better. Right? That's, that's what we're kind of inclined to think. And Israel needed to remember that the situation they observed at that particular time, first of all, was not all there was to see. There were realities at work behind the scenes beyond what was visible to them, God at work in ways that they weren't aware of. There was more there than they could see. And secondly, it wasn't the way it would always be. Just because it's small now doesn't mean that glory won't come, right? It doesn't mean it's going to be small forever. And so the, the, this word of prophecy through Zechariah to the community would challenge them in this way. Don't get stuck on what you see. Don't think that reality is all defined by what's visible to you. Jesus, in his parable in Matthew chapter 13, compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed known in Palestine. So he takes the smallest seed that they would be aware of, and it's a seed that grows into a sizable garden plant, not like the most enormous tree in the world. It's, it's about 8 to 12 feet tall when the mustard tree is fully grown. But it's a sizable garden plant, and it has leafy branches that supply shade and provides nesting for birds. And that's what Jesus himself says, that the birds of the air make nests in its branches. And so the point is not necessarily that the mustard plant is huge, right? The tiniest seed becomes the biggest thing you can ever imagine. But that compared to its tiny seed, the substantial size, once it's full grown, is totally unexpected. You don't expect this tiny seed to grow into an eight to 12 foot tree that birds nest in. You expect it to be something very small and indeed it's something stable and something sizable. And that seems to be what Jesus is, is speaking of when he talks about the kingdom as a mustard seed. It's a mustard seed that's hidden in the earth. It's small. 
sometimes so small you can barely see it. And then it's hidden in the earth. It's invisible. You don't even know what's happening down there. I hope the seed does something. But when it's fully grown, it becomes a sizable plant that gives blessing to all around it. Friends, the kingdom of God may look like a mustard seed today. The glimpses of God at work, the buds of spiritual fruit on the vine may be almost imperceptible at times. The rays of heavenly sunlight piercing through the clouds of human folly and worldly powers may seem few and far between. But there's more at hand than what our eyes can see. Because Jesus didn't only say in that parable that the kingdom would come. He said the kingdom is here. Wherever the word of God is proclaimed, the kingdom is present. Wherever the sick and needy are loved and honored, the kingdom is present. Wherever humility and kindness are on display, the kingdom is present. Wherever an act of hatred and malice is met with forgiveness and mercy, the kingdom is present. God is at work, even now, doing far more than we can possibly see or know at any given time. Don't be discouraged by what you see. The kingdom is here, and the kingdom is growing. And secondly, this isn't the way it will always be, right? Just because it looks small now doesn't mean it will always be small. Just as the tiny mustard seed grows at last into a sizable garden plant and its branches provide blessing, to God's creatures, so will the kingdom of God one day come in its fullness. The glory of God and the Lamb, bright as daylight. The good and beautiful things of this world carried over and multiplied in a new creation. The broken and distorted and unjust in this world redeemed, restored, made right in the eternal kingdom. The mustard seed kingdom is growing. It's present and it's growing in his good time. And one day... It will provide blessing beyond what we can possibly know at this moment. And so the lampstand in the temple, the olive trees supplying oil to the lamp, the promise to Zerubbabel, it will be built. The promise to the people, you will see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel means don't get stuck on what it looks like right now. The kingdom is being built. The temple is in process. God's presence is here. It's returning. Glory will come. The temple will be built. Promise number two. The Spirit will empower His people. The Spirit will empower His people. They might have been encouraged with just the message as far as it's gone so far to say the temple will be built. You will see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's hands will complete it. If he had stopped there, that might have made them feel a little better. Oh, well, God seems to think this is going to happen. Great. But then there's a, there's a burden. There's a gap, right? There's, well, what now? How do we do this? Do we do this on our own? Do we have to summon the energy and the strength and the wisdom and the discipline to, to make this happen? What, what do we, how do we do this? And so the second thing that that is all through this passage is the reality that the strength in which Zerubbabel and his people will work is the strength of his spirit, the strength supplied by God's spirit. Look in verse six, probably the central verse of this image. He says, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. 
not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. If you have a verse from Zechariah stitched on a pillow or a mug, it's probably this one, right? Not by might or by, or by power, but by my spirit. It's a, it's a well-known verse. This is the context of it. It's this promise. The temple will be rebuilt. The glory of God will return. The people will be reestablished, but not in your own strength, but by the, the strength that God supplies by his spirit present with his people upon his people. So it's very clearly stated there. This will be done not by your own might, not by your own power, not by your own intelligence, but by the Spirit of God. We see the Spirit of God as well in the second part of verse 10, where we see the seven eyes. And this seems to be the angel speaking of the lamp, the lamps. Right? So there's a lampstand with seven lamps. And then down in verse 10, the second part, he says, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of Yahweh, which range through the whole earth. So he seems to be speaking of those seven lamps. So the lamps on the lampstand, in a sense, represent the eyes of God, which are fairly consistently an image of the Spirit of God. In Ezra 5, 5, the very passage where, uh, the very narrative passage where this is happening, where the work is, is beginning again, it says, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, right? To do good to them, to strengthen them. The eyes of their God was on the elders of the Jews. In an in a even maybe more poignant passage, in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, we're told, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Some translations say to those whose heart is whole toward him or those whose heart is fully his. Actually, the way I learned that verse was whose heart is fully his. And I realized that's just a different translation. There's NASB says it that way, maybe the New Living Translation. So it's a little bit different in ESV. But the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro over the whole earth. Why? To find his people and support them with strength to give strength to his people. And don't forget that in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In Revelation, the seven spirits are pretty clearly the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, and the job that the spirit, the seven spirits in Revelation have, is, is what? It, it's eyes sent out into all the earth. So the eyes of God that roam the earth to find his people and give them support and strength are the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God by his spirit among his people to strengthen, to encourage, to empower them for the work that he has given them to do. So the, the seven eyes of the Lord ranging through the whole earth, I think, are a reference to the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit of God with his people. Another way that we see the Spirit of God empowering his people is through the olive trees. Now, this is a little bit uh, difficult and obscure, and there's a couple of different ways that, that, uh, that, that commentators and, and theologians sort of take this. But you notice there's two olive trees, one on either side. And you might have noticed that Zechariah asks about those trees three times in this passage. He has a hard time with them. 
which maybe gives us a little bit of comfort because sometimes we have a hard time with these things too. I don't know what that means. You might think Zechariah's like, oh, clearly that's what this is. Three times he asked the angel, uh, what are those? Oh, and uh, what about the olive trees? And then a third time he says something like, what about the branches of the olive trees that are pouring into the golden bowl? So he asks three occasions for the angel to explain what these olive trees are. And the angel kind of acts like, what, you, you don't know? You can't, you can't tell? Which is kind of interesting. Maybe he should have been able to see it, but he can't. But he asks three times what these olive trees are. And here is how the angel responds in verse 13. He said to me, do you know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Verse 14. Then he said, these, that is these olive trees, are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, I confess, when I, my first pass through this book, when I was kind of beginning to plan for, for teaching this series, I thought that those two anointed ones were probably Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor, the ruler, right, as pictures of, of Christ. I think I've changed my mind, and I think I believe now that those two olive trees are actually the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. In other words, they are the anointed ones of God. They're the ones that have been given the, the message, the word of God, to come alongside the leaders and the people of God to, to encourage and exhort them. And so their ministry, Haggai and Zechariah, their ministry among the people of God is to provide them the strength and support of God's word. In other words, they, the, the strength of the Holy Spirit will come to his people largely through the ministry of his prophets. Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2 sort of summarize that ministry. talks about how the people uh, began, uh, were, were encouraged to continue the work of the temple uh, and were supported in the work by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2 summarizes that ministry of these two prophets. And so it, it, so it seems to me that perhaps these anointed ones are actually Haggai and Zechariah as the ones who speak to the people on behalf of God, providing the word of God to them and thus the strength of the Spirit, supporting their work through the ministry of the word. And that might be why Zechariah has such a hard time with that image. Like, that's not me, is it? Surely I'm not one of those, right? So it, it kind of makes sense of why he has a hard time with uh, kind of seeing himself in the, the vision, if you will. But the point of it is, the point of the olive trees is that they provide an endless source of power for the lamps to keep burning, right? In the Old Testament, uh, in the, under the old priestly system, there were priests that worked in the temple that had to continue putting oil into the bowls to keep those lamps burning. The image here is there's no such priestly work necessary. These two anointed ones of God stand beside the, the, the lamp, continually supplying it with with olive oil, right? Because they're olive trees, they supply it with oil. So there's an endless supply of the strength of the Spirit for the people to do the work he's given them to do. There is no shortage of strength for the work of the kingdom. I think it also implies that there will be no diminishing of God's glorious presence, right? As long as the lamps are burning, as long as oil is being continually supplied, God's presence is there in full. There is no lack, there's no diminishment, deficiency in God's nearness to his people. And so the lamps being supplied with oil from the two trees is a metaphor 
indicating that Zerubbabel and the people of Israel would be empowered by a strength outside of themselves. Just as the lamps needed strength from somewhere else, so the people would need to be empowered by a strength outside themselves, namely the support of the Holy Spirit upon them through perhaps the ministry of these prophets. So, I'm very sympathetic to the view that it's actually Joshua and Zerubbabel, so if you, if you come to that conclusion, I'm okay with that, but that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at today. The Spirit will empower his people. Zerubbabel and the Israelites would not complete the work of the temple through their own strength and ingenuity. They weren't to fend off their enemies with military might or uh, restore the nation's previous glory and blessing by their own wisdom but by the means supplied by the Spirit of God, namely the Word of God preached by His prophets. And that makes sense, and that seems consistent with how God operates among His people, that the strength of the Spirit would come to His people as His Word is heard and understood and preached and proclaimed and honored. The Word of God honored and heard is what provides the strength of the Spirit to His people. The people of Israel needed to hear that message in that day, Friends, the church today needs to hear and heed this exhortation. Jesus indeed promised to build his church. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a promise. There's no condition there. This will happen. But it will not be accomplished by human strength or worldly wisdom. He might say to the church today, as he said to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. He might say to the church today, not by wealth and not by marketing, but by my spirit. Or not by slickly produced music and not by comedian preachers. Or not by cultural relevance and not by political influence, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So what does building the church by his spirit look like? Here's some ideas. Faithful ministry of the word and observance of the ordinances. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. Just the ongoing faithful ministry under God's word, the visible manifestations of the gospel he's given us. Fervent prayer and acts of service to others. Is there a more mustard seed activity than praying, by the way? You want to change the world? You want to change a life? Go into your closet and get on your knees and talk to your father who's in secret? That doesn't sound like a plan. That doesn't sound like a strategy that we come up with. But that's how God builds his kingdom. That's how God does his work. An embrace of the upside-down values of the kingdom of God over and against the pursuit of worldly power and influence. Too many Christians today are very hungry for worldly influence. Got to get the right people in office. We've got to get the right policies passed so that the church can again be the sort of prevailing cultural influence in the world. That's not how the kingdom gets built because this kingdom isn't of this world. The cultivation of godliness, the fruit of the spirit as Christians pursue lives of holiness together. These are small things. These are simple things. These are not on the face of it things that change the world. These are the means, the ordinary means of grace, we might say, whereby God brings his kingdom to bear upon this world and where his kingdom grows from a mustard seed into a full-sized plant. And so the people of God will be supplied with strength from the Spirit, not by our own wisdom, not by our own plans, not by our own strength, 
but we simply follow the commands that he gives us in his word and we trust that he will do what he intends to do. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. So he will empower the people with his spirit. The third and final promise that I see in these verses is that the king will reign. The king will reign. The central figure in this prophetic oracle is, is Zerubbabel. He's named several times. He's addressed directly. He's spoken of in the, the, the address to the community at large. He is, he, he is center stage in this vision. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah, as I've already mentioned. He came back with the exiles and began leading this effort to rebuild the temple. Uh, he's the son of Shealtiel. And why that's important is that tells us he's in the line of David. So Zerubbabel is a son of David, and he is serving as, at this point, a ruler over God's people, the governor of Judah. And so in the short term, because he's a son of David, he is qualified to oversee the temple's reconstruction, right? Because David was the one who first uh, had the heart to build for, for God a temple. He didn't ultimately do it. That work fell to Solomon, David's son. But because he's in the line of David, he is qualified to be the one who, who rebuilds the temple in uh, Jerusalem. But he also stands as a type, that is a picture of another king who would sit on the throne of his father, David, not for a generation, but for eternity, Jesus Christ. Going back to Isaiah 40, verse 4. It's quoted uh, or, or it's alluded to earlier in verse 7 where he says, you know, who are you, O great mountain, before it's a rubber bell, you will become a plain. Uh, and that had to do with, with a promise of Zerubbabel completing the rebuilding of the temple, right? That comes from, it's an allusion to a passage in Isaiah chapter 40 that actually was first alluded to in Zechariah's first vision, back in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, The Lord will again comfort Zion. The Lord will comfort Zion. That comfort spoken of by the prophet Isaiah and spoken of in the first vision of Zechariah in most immediately in the historical context had to do with God returning to the people of Judah and restoring to them their identity and returning to the temple and, and coming to them. He would comfort them, that is by restoring them again. But the gospel writers, both Matthew and John, apply those words of Isaiah about the mountain becoming a plain to the ministry of John the Baptist. A voice crying out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. This is what John the Baptist is declaring. And, the, and Matthew and John both say, this was to fulfill, and then they quote Isaiah 40. And so what is John the Baptist doing as he fulfills the, the prophecy of Isaiah 40 in his ministry? He's announcing the arrival of God's Messiah. That's the whole role that John the Baptist played, right? He came onto the scene after 400 or so years of, of silence from God. There was no prophet in Israel. And John the Baptist comes onto the scene, a voice crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. He's announcing that Messiah has come. He's here. He's declaring the ultimate comfort that God has brought to his people, namely his own presence. 
the eternal Son of God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. So even that little reference there, O great mountain, you will be made a plain before Zerubbabel, is one of those intertextual connections where we see that's a prophecy from Isaiah, and then that prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist, who's speaking of the coming of the Messiah. All of that points us not to Zerubbabel as the king of Israel, but to Jesus as king over his people. The king will reign. For the people of Israel returning uh, to Judah from exile, they needed this word of encouragement. Zerubbabel will be a faithful ruler. He will get this work done. But God's people then and now needed a fuller comfort, needed a farther reaching promise, a promise of a king who would reign not for a generation, but for eternity. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. The king will reign. Christ will be the king over his people. And so the three promises that this vision presents to us, the temple will be built, the spirit will empower his people, and the king will reign. All immediate words of relevance and need and comfort and hope to the people living in Judah in that day while the temple was in ruins. And all fuller hope and comfort for us today as we stand under the grace of Christ in the gospel. And so Zechariah chapters 3 and 4 show us two visions side by side in the center of this chiasm, featuring first a high priest who will cleanse and purify his people, and secondly, a Davidic king who will forever restore to them the presence of God. And this restoration of glory and covenant blessing won't be found or achieved by human wisdom and ingenuity, creative marketing strategies, or programs for moral self-improvement. It will come by the unmerited grace of God, applied to human hearts and lives through simple faith in his Messiah, the anointed king and priest, Jesus Christ. It will come as the church of Jesus diligently, stubbornly, faithfully engages in the mustard seed work of his kingdom. I heard a pastor say this week, reflecting on these verses of the mustard seed, uh, that, that because of that reality, that our faith in the presence and growth of God's kingdom through small and seemingly insignificant acts of faithfulness, he said, we believe in the ridiculous enterprise of preaching the gospel to sinners. This is not worldly wisdom. Paul calls it foolishness in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. How are you going to change the world? I'm not going to go become president. I'm going to preach the gospel to sinners. That's how God built his kingdom. As we preach the gospel over and over again, inviting sinners to repent and trust in Christ for life and salvation, we watch. And we wait with eager anticipation for the day when God's anointed Messiah returns to the world he created and restores it to wholeness and to complete the redemption of his people. And in that day, the world will at last live at peace under the good rule of Jesus Christ, our faithful king and priest.